strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Appreciate you spending some time with the show this morning. Lori Lightfoot, uh, mayor of Chicago, lost her re-election bid. First time in 40 years that's happened in Chicago that a mayor was not re-elected. And critics are saying that crime does not pay, that it is the stance on and the high crime rates in the city of Chicago that she's made a mess of a lot of different things. But that's one of the main reasons. This has been a focus on this show for quite a long time, safe streets, wanting safe streets, a safe place to live. Yesterday, we highlighted that the number of cleared cases as far as homicides go is at about 50 percent. Now, part of the reason is we have had had a spike in, in violent crimes and homicides around the country. And so it's harder to get staffed up enough to have qualified. Uh, there is a science to homicide investigation. We understand the scientific side with you know, DNA and blood and fingerprints. But there is a science to being an investigator. And um, the men and women who learn this skill develop it over time. Uh, my brother is a captain in the sheriff's office, and he oversees homicides in the sheriff's department. That's one of the divisions he oversees. Now, he is not a homicide investigator. He is a detective, but not a homicide investigator. I just had a conversation with him recently in which he said he has got the best people on the planet working for him, that it makes his job so much easier at how good his homicide investigators are, that he is kind of an overseer um, of it, and he does the administration part of it. But he's got great people that do the job. And uh, whatever city we live in here, we need people that can do these investigations. And we talk about policing. And I'm going to get back to Lori Lightfoot specifically in a moment. But when we talk about – I talk about Phoenix often because I live in Phoenix and it's our, our biggest city. But I would imagine this is a problem everywhere with staffing that when the previous police chief Jerry Williams had to make a decision of getting enough officers out for patrol there is a minimum level of patrol staffing that's necessary the number one job of a police department is calls for service if you dial 911 you expect a police officer to show up in a timely manner and help you and that is their number one job so the reorganization that they had to do pulled detectives out of those details put them back in uniform and put them back on the street and patrol what that means means is when those patrol officers do an investigation, and very often a patrol officer doesn't have the information necessary to make an arrest. So what they do is they put a case together, they put a file together, and they send it off to a detective. And then a detective does his or her due diligence, and they go out and do the investigation. If there is a case to be made, they build that case, and then they make the arrest. If you've taken detectives away from those bureaus, you have less and less people with a much bigger caseload, which makes crimes harder to solve. I mean, Everything I just said is pure common sense. Lori Lightfoot's critics are saying that what's happening in Chicago and the reason she didn't win re-election is she made a mess in the way she handled things. Um, so there is also a byproduct of this, a wealthy nonprofit that pumped $100 million into clearing out city jails and populations. The results have backfired, that there was a disparity. And I don't – you know, again, I'm not here to argue the disparity, that there was a disproportionate number of people of color in jails compared to the population of the Caucasian population. And so in order to rectify that disparity, they were spending millions and millions of dollars in major cities to reduce the number of inmates in a jail. Now, that doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that more people of color, whether it's uh, Hispanic or Asians or African Americans on the street makes streets more dangerous, but more criminals do. I don't care what color you are. That's the issue here for me, is nobody cares about the color of your skin more than you do. 
And what I mean by that is if you are helping me, if I am in a situation where I need help, if I have a medical emergency, if I have a police emergency, if there is a fire, if um, I'm broken down on the side of the road and you stop to help me, the color of your skin doesn't matter to me at all. And the reverse of that is also true. If you are aiming to do me harm, I mentioned uh, the I've, I've told the story a number of times where I stopped two shoplifters at a Circle K when I was younger. And when I say younger, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, and one was African-American and one was white. And the white kid was was definitely the aggressor wanted to kill me and was throwing liquor bottles at me and making threats and making a fool of himself and and uh the other guy was in on it was going to fight me too but i didn't care what color they were didn't matter what color their skin was these were two criminals that were trying to steal from a store that then wanted to beat me up because i stopped them i don't care what color your skin is no one else does either so when we start doing these things in the name of equity i'm all in favor of making sure everybody is treated equitable Equitably, Everybody's treating equally. I am in favor of it. But you don't turn criminals loose. And that's what they've been doing. And cities are paying for it. New Orleans residents warn, don't sit in your car. Carjacking spike 165%. And New Orleans is also the murder capital of the country. Carjacking spike higher than 2020 levels in cities across the country. It's a perfect storm. Um, St. Louis... If you have, there's a video online, and I'm warning you now, it is graphic and terrifying. But it exists. If you want to see it, I didn't post it because I'm not glorifying this stuff. A homeless guy in St. Louis is sitting on the curb, just sitting and minding his own business. The video is picked up that I saw where there's a guy standing behind him wearing kind of like a fleece jacket, and he pulls out a gun. And he fumbles around and it takes him a few seconds to load this gun. He loads the handgun and it looks like it's a it's a pistol. He loads the pistol and then just very nonchalantly aims it and shoots this homeless guy in the back of the head. Now, there's people filming this. Now, why they didn't stop him or try to stop him or say something, I don't know, but it's on film. St. Louis suspects seem calmly loading guns, shooting homeless man execution style in broad daylight, according to the police. Uh, Portland, crime in Portland has turned it into a hollowed out shell. Its neighbors are trying to keep it from happening to them. And now an interesting comment. The mayor of New York, who many of us, if you've listened to some of his policies, I, I certainly don't agree with. But the mayor of New York was speaking at an interfaith breakfast yesterday, and he said this. When we took prayers out of school, guns came into schools. Hundreds of religious leaders applauded when he said it. He said, don't tell me about no separation of church and state. State is the body. Church is the heart. You take the heart out of the body, the body dies. This is the very liberal mayor of New York. Um, After the event... A spokesperson said, uh, Mayor Adams personally believes all of our faiths would ensure we are humane to one another. The spokesperson accused the reporters of asking whether Adams did not support separation of church and state of attempting to hijack the narrative in an effort to misrepresent the mayor's comments. Um, Pretty amazing, pretty remarkable that the mayor of New York would say that. Don't tell me about no separation of church and state. We are beginning to see this, that our political differences will always exist. And I would even go as far as to say should always exist. 
But there are things that we all had in common and have in common, and one of them is faith. In the days after 9-11, look at what happened and how Republicans and Democrats came together. If you remember uh, George W. Bush, the president of the United States, in a joint session of Congress, when he gave a speech, received a standing ovation by the entire United States Congress. The House and the Senate went out onto the steps of the United States Capitol, Republicans and Democrats, and they joined hands, and they sang God Bless America to the entire world as a show of solidarity and defiance against those that would murder us. We should always embrace our political differences and fight like crazy for the things we believe in. But this is the kind of stuff that everybody believes in, safe streets. Making sure that for the most part, you live in relative safety. Now, there's always the anomaly. Crime is going to be a part of our lives. But criminals should know that they are, they are going to be outnumbered and not the other way around. Coming up in a moment, um, Pinal and Yuma County officials went to D.C. to speak to a committee. They went to a House committee talking about the border. You're going to hear a little bit of what they had to say coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks for uh, being with the show today. A House committee uh, convened to talk about um, the border issues that local law enforcement agents, Arizona officials went. Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb, Dr. Robert uh, Trenchell, president and CEO of the Yuma Regional Medical Center, testified as part of the House Homeland Security Committee hearing on the border crisis. Um, I want you to hear a little bit of Sheriff Lamb as he talked about this. He gave some statistics and the effects that it's had on his community. We have had a 377% increase in the last two years with tra- for traffic stops involving human smuggling and trafficking. We have had a 461% increase in pursuits involving human smuggling, putting my citizens at risk. Now, the drivers are predominantly American, but oftentimes they are juveniles being actively recruited by the cartels on social media, paying them $1,000 per person that they transport into my community. So um, let's start with this. I I, I mentioned this yesterday. I learned a lot at this border summit I was at last week. Arizona Congressman Juan Siscomani, who is a Mexican immigrant, by the way, first Mexican immigrant to be elected to Congress from the state of Arizona, uh, hit it out of the park in the conversation he had and clarified some things that I knew to be true, but said them in such a concise way. I've been repeating them every chance I get because it's helped clarify my thoughts on this. There are three different legs of the stool. He called them buckets, but three. Three legs of the immigration stool, one of them being immigration itself, the other one being commerce and trade, and the last being border security. They are independent of each other, just like our branches of government, but so intertwined. So you hear the border sheriff or a sheriff in Pinal County, not exactly a border sheriff, but it is bordering the Tohana Odom Nation. So then you cross the tribal land, which also straddles the border. So it's the first American Sovereign, you know, American county when you come up through that part of the border when you reach Pinal County and you hear the sheriff giving these statistics. There are a couple of things I wonder that might be solutions because here's another headline of what a problem is. Uh, hotel industry tells Congress that the U.S. needs more immigrants. Um, if we were to expand our guest worker program, 
Would it alleviate some of the pressure on the border? That's just a question because it is two different things, but they do work together. And if we have our federal assets are, are processing asylum seekers and the vast majority of those asylum claims are found to be unfounded and they are told no, but sometimes it takes years to get through those cases, would it alleviate some of those false requests if they had a legal recourse in looking for a job and we could fill jobs that Americans aren't doing? I'm just asking that question. I want you to hear how the sheriff talks about it. It's affecting the resources. Every summer we spend our helicopter, our resources. It's a drain on my resources. My canines are dedicated uh, solely to interdiction. I have an anti-smuggling unit. My helicopter. We had 10 events yesterday alone. One of them was a 911 call. We had a gentleman we had to go find that the cartel left for dead a year or so ago. When we found him, he was laying under a Palo Verde tree. We had to give him three bags of IV to bring him back. And while we were doing that, there was seven more 911 calls on the board for lost, injured, or left behind smugglers. Uh, the, these are statistics you cannot ignore. You cannot ignore what they are being, what's being said. Now this one is part of it. Um, this is, to me, is the most devastating as an American. The most devastating part of this is what it, the impact on women and children and trafficking. When they come here, the women are being raped. We had a woman we caught a while back that had a baggie full of pills, and we said, what are these pills? And she says, well, when I came across the border, I knew I'd be raped multiple times. These are morning after pills. Have we lost our moral compass so bad that we put politics in front of people? They're raping the women, using the ch- raping the children, using them as pawns, oftentimes putting them in the sex trade here in America. Slavery is as prolific, uh, is super prolific nowadays. They're extorting the men. The cartel knows this. How many times can they sell you a pill? Once. How many times can they sell you a woman? Hundreds. How many times can they sell you a child? Hundreds. And this is what the cartel is doing. You know, to have an advocate like Sheriff Lamb, he is very well known around the country as America's sheriff. You saw him a bunch on TV when, when um, Live PD was a television show. He was a frequent guest there. He has been a speaker and a, an author across the country because he is someone that is standing up and I think speaking in a terms that are not partisan. This is not a partisan issue. Uh, the cartels are not uh, trafficking in Republicans or Democrats. They're trafficking in people. That these are women and girls and, and children and it's disgusting. And we are having this battle that we should not be having. There is no way you will ever convince me that the United States does not have the assets, the resources, and the will to stop what's happening at our southern border. We have gotten involved. Uh, we have gotten involved at least with equipment um, and support for Ukraine. Not calling it right or wrong. I'm saying we have done it. We have gone into Iraq. We have gone into Afghanistan. We have gone into Africa. We have gone into other countries where terrorism is uh, is is ravaging countries, and we've helped nations do that with our own people and our own support of money and equipment. And here we are at our southern border. You cannot tell me that the drug cartels are not terrorist organizations. They behave exactly like a terrorist organization does, just like Al Qaeda. 
You look at the cartels, they use fear tactics and intimidation. They use violence and murder. They use all of these things as tools to control people. The more money they make, the more power they get, the more guns that they buy, gives them more money, gives them more power, and they are growing stronger and stronger. And it's affecting more and more Americans every single day. If we don't get serious, if we don't, as a federal government, stand up and say to the president, whatever his policies are, these are the laws we have created, and this is the money and assets we're going to put in place to secure our border, and then let's see if the president signs it. These are issues we can no longer wait for. This is not about xenophobia and racism, and no, it isn't. This is about the safety of the American people, and right now, the border is in a really bad place. So uh, we'll, we'll pick up on this a little bit later. There's more that the sheriff had to say. Coming up in a moment, the American Federation of Teachers president goes off about a Supreme Court hearing. I'm going to give you details about that coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. The uh, American Federation of Teachers president um, was giving a speech, was out in front of um, the Supreme Court, and it had an absolute meltdown and uh, was uh, was talking about the student loan forgiveness and very upset uh, about what happened. And um, I want to read a little bit of this. Uh, the American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten railed against college uh, challenges to President Biden's student loan cancellation pr- plans. Uh, students and politician activists rallied outside the Supreme Court Monday night throughout Tuesday at a high bench uh, as the high bench heard arguments for two cases that will determine whether or not they can cancel an estimated $400 billion in student loans. And it's interesting how this went. I want you to hear a little bit of this. Um, this is part of what the arguments are about in this student loan case. For more than three hours Tuesday, the conservative justices casting doubt on whether President Biden has the legal authority to wipe nearly half a trillion dollars in federal student loans with just a stroke of his pen. If you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act. So this is what they're they're arguing about. Now, I want you to hear Randy Weingarten. Now, she is the president of a major. There are there are a few major teachers unions in the country. One of them is the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. This is her organization. This is what she had to say. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off. During the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting and we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting and we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it. The corporations challenge it. The student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair. And that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. Well, the difference here, and it's a major difference that I know she understands, is that the PPP loans were created because the government shut down businesses. And so they created the PPP loans as long as employers kept employees employed and kept paying people that – 
those loans would be forgiven. That was the that was at its creation. That was how those loans were created. Student loans were never created that way. There's a problem here. Education, as we know, it is changing. Um, it is changing whether they like it or not. Starting at the K through 12 level, it's expanding into the college level as well. And I, I'll say this, and I, I, this is where I get a little bit defensive, and I admit it comes from my background. Um, I made huge mistakes when I was a business person. Made huge mistakes. I I borrowed against my house to expand my business. I mixed business with my personal money and and it just all fell apart. It was a it was a disaster. But that was my mistake. My mistake that I paid for. Um when people go and just to give you numbers, I borrowed $50,000 to expand my business. Borrowed it against my house. Put a, took a third mortgage out. Home equity line of credit, a HELOC. And uh, when my business went south, I was on the hook for that money. And that money took me years to pay that money off. Years to pay that money off. I paid back every penny. Every penny. Um, we hear from people that that college students are better because they help the employment. They are smarter students, better equipped, make better employees, and this is good for the country. There's no doubt it's good for the country. How about the small business owners that have gone through the process of a SBA loan, a small business administration loan, to go out and build a business or expand a business, to come up with a business plan? Um, is anybody – are we going to now lobby the government to forgive those loans because, hey, listen, as an employer, um, I went to the small business – not me personally, but a business owner goes to the small business administration, and they say, you know what? I've got a business that's ready to grow. Uh, construction here in Arizona is going very, very well. I've got a lot of jobs that I can get lined up. I just don't have the capital to for these jobs. I just don't have the ability to fund these jobs I like alone. And you come up with a good business plan. The SBA looks at it. The SBA approves it. And they give you a loan. And so you take that loan and you begin to start your business and a recession hits or 9-11 hits again or the pandemic hits and things get shut down. And all of a sudden, you're stuck. You've got this massive loan. Nobody's hiring you anymore. Jobs get canceled. And you've got a ton of money that's out there that you aren't going to recoup. Is the government going to refund your loan? Is the government going to forgive your loan? Is the But you say to people, listen, I'm employing people. I'm an employer. My business employs people. I keep America working. Should the government forgive your loan? I will tell you that I think that the student loan debt, the cost of education is ridiculous. And that um, we have seen costs go up, 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 up over the years, and people are finally pushing back. We are seeing a shift from people instead of entering a university right away. Many people are seeking out a certificate. When you can get certified to ply a trade within a year or maybe two years at the most, and you're exiting school with a third of the loan debt, but you also are getting sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year in pay, people are opting for that. Why do you think the CTEDs, the career educational district, districts, the career technical education districts are, are flourishing the way they are, not just here in Arizona, but around the country, you, and not just with high school students either, but with adult education? Where you've got adults that are going back and saying, I'm going to air conditioning school. I'm going to learn to be an electrician. I want to learn coding. I'm going to the culinary school. I'm going here. I'm going there. Because a welding, the welding program, it blows my mind. I love welding, by the way. I'm terrible at it, but I like it. I like it a lot. Um, and welders are making eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 a year as a welder, as a journeyman welder. 
And you're not talking about going to welding school to the tune of 60, 70, 80, 90, $100,000 in debt that you've got to pay back over time. You're talking about a much smaller investment and a much bigger return. I think a college education is valuable. We need teachers. We need lawyers. We need doctors. We need nurses. We need accountants. We need all of these people that require these degrees. There's no doubt. But look at some of the degrees that people are going to school for. They're going to school for degrees that are kind of not meaningless, but they are definitely um, generic. And they're coming out of college loaded with debt and getting a job for 30 grand a year. I think it's horrible. But when I found myself in a horrible situation, and I found myself in a horrible situation, when the market wasn't my fault, the market went south in 08 and 09, certainly was not my fault that that happened. But I made a lot of mistakes in my business, and I was over my head in debt. I had my friends that were in business uh, kind of counseling me on it, mentoring on this, and you know, you're going to be able to do this, and it was baby steps to get out of it. Took me a long, long time, and it was six figures and what I was in debt. By the time it was all done, and I paid everybody back. I didn't complain. I didn't ask somebody to forgive my debt. I didn't tell somebody that they owed me because I had been creating jobs. It's terrible to be in a position when you realize I shouldn't have done that. But somebody else doesn't pay your debt. And when Randy Weingarten goes out there and goes in this tirade and she screams and yells about this, she knows the difference. She knows the difference of what PPP loans were created to do and what a student loan was. And she convolutes the two, and it's because she's in charge of education with a major union, and it's changing, and they don't like it. In a moment, we're going to talk about the cancel culture. Is there hypocrisy in the cancel culture? I've got a great example coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. You know, the uh, common theme is that our thought process is if you just don't care what the cancel culture says, you're not going to be canceled because you can't be canceled by people that you don't care what they have to say. And in many cases, that's true. You know, I look at Twitter and I look at I, I love Twitter, by the way. I love social media and I like it because of the free exchange of ideas. And there are people that show their true colors immediately by saying stupid, horrible things. And they're usually anonymous. It's usually slappy 687 without a real name. They are just out there to drop bombs and be idiots. But for the most part, it, it gives people a buffer and a way to have an honest conversation about things. And I don't mind when it gets vitriolic a lot of times. I like social media in that way. But I don't treat it like a real place. When people come down on me for an op- opinion I have and they form a thought about who I am based on 140 characters or whatever the limit is now on Twitter, um, I laugh about that because I don't assume to know everything about you, but you make assumptions about me based on what I do for a living. So the cancel culture to me is a bit different, except we know the cancel culture is powerful in a number of ways where people who have done things have literally lost their jobs because of something they said. Uh, Kevin Hart is the one famous story about an award show, said some, made some kind of homophobic tweets 10 years ago ago or so, deleted the tweets, apologized for them, and that wasn't enough. They wanted him to apologize again, and he didn't, and he lost his job hosting an award show. Now, his career has survived. You look at a guy like a Dave Chappelle, who I think is the most, uh, well, I should say him, and probably Ricky Gervais, the comedian, and Bill Burr, another one, all three brilliant people 
who, generally speaking, go against the cancel culture and saying, I don't care what you say about me. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I'm going to call you out for your nonsense. And they do, and they're brilliant at it. Um, Bill Maher was recently on with Jake Tapper on CNN and said, I could get canceled at any time. And he talked about how his audience used to grumble and boo him and and how upsetting it was to him um, and how open-minded he is. He said a lot of his audience is liberal, but sometimes they can be conservative. And that's what a real conversation is supposed to be. But I have a question about the hypocrisy of the cancel culture. Um, And this was just done recently. And I actually heard Joe Rogan talking about this, that uh, there was a guy, a couple of young people on a college campus, I believe, they put on a sombrero and they were walking around a college campus and they were asking white students, you know, is this offensive? And they said, well, if you're not Mexican, yes, it's offensive. Yes, it's offensive. Yes, it's offensive. And then he went to a Mexican neighborhood, a Hispanic neighborhood and said, is this offensive? And they said, no, it's funny. It's fine. The hypocrisy of the cancel culture. A white woman caught lying about her race resigns as an equity inclusion officer. Um, we've known this is a famous cases of this happening before. I'm wading into this because of the utter nonsense that this is sometimes. So you can't say I was born white, but I, I align myself with, I identify with the black community. That's cultural appropriation. If you wear uh, a traditional Native American garb of any kind, a headdress or anything, it's cultural appropriation and it's offensive. That's all offensive. But when somebody that's born a man that is still anatomically a male dresses as a woman and demands that you call him a woman, or and I'm not trying to be offensive, call that person a woman because they say I have always identified as a woman, that's not cultural appropriation. When um, Caitlyn Jenner decided that Bruce Jenner no longer existed or never existed, that I've always been Caitlyn and now I've had the surgery and I'm officially Caitlyn. When Caitlyn Jenner was named Woman of the Year her first year as a woman, women shouldn't say that's cultural appropriation. When anatomical males, and this to me I think is the most severe, when anatomical males are playing in women's sports and dominating women's sports to the point of injuring some of the female participants, especially at the high school level. Level. We just had a women's basketball team here in the country forfeit in their state tournament because there was a, uh, a transgender male that was playing on the team that identified as female and was allowed to participate. It's a safety hazard. It's horrible because young women are losing their opportunity because there's not a lot of opportunity post high school and college in professional sports for women. There's basketball and soccer, but it's not nearly the same as it is for men. So they're the, the epitome, the pinnacle of their careers usually are at those levels. And here we are convoluting this. So how is it, again, if I put on a sombrero, if I put on a traditional Native American headdress, that I'm going to be called a cultural appropriator? If I go in blackface, I'm going to get fired. If I go to a party dressed in blackface as a joke, I'm going to get fired. No matter what I say about it, that would get me fired. That's cultural appropriation. But when someone says, I know that I am biologically male, but I identify as a female, they're held up and we're in trouble if we don't call them a woman. That's not cultural appropriation or some kind of gender appropriation, whatever you want to call it. There's hypocrisy there. 
I believe if you're an adult and you want to live as a woman, you have a right to do whatever you want with your life. If it makes you happy, I have no right to judge you and I'm not judging you. But you can't force other people to do what you tell them to do. And if not, that person's canceled. I have to be careful about the way I say this. If complaints come in, I don't want to lose my job over this. I should not have to worry about that. Coming up just after 10 o'clock, a hearing at the legislature questioned by Republicans. I'm going to tell you why that happened next.